From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we share more summer job stories from writers Karen Duques, John Gredler, and Anna Perret. On summer mornings at Motif Designs, women in tennis skirts flip through fat books of Marameco wallpaper. I was 17 and had interest in none of it. That summer, my mother would come into my room every morning and leave the help wanted section of the newspaper on my bed. That summer, I worked part-time at a pick-your-own-market garden, picking fruit to be sold at the farm stand. I was allowed to take home as many punnets as I wanted, I think. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer David Masello shares a memory and reflections on his mother a newspaper columnist who spent countless hours before a manual typewriter set on the dining table. Writing always made my mother happy. During the 1960s and 70s, she published scores of first-person essays for a freelance column called News Lady, a popular feature in the now-defunct Chicago Daily News. That's coming up right now on Read 650. Summer jobs nudge us into adulthood with a taste of what it's like to have to set an alarm each night and show up at an appointed time and place each morning. They bestow some responsibility with training wheels, offering a glimpse into the kind of future we might like to pursue or avoid, and they provide a measure of independence with what may be our first real paychecks. For today's show, we offer differing perspectives on summer jobs and the life lessons they provide. First up is Karen Duquesse. Karen has a work history as eclectic as her taste in books. She's been a tour guide in the former Soviet Union, a newspaper reporter in Florida, a magazine publisher in Russia, and for nearly a decade, a speechwriter on gender equality at the United Nations Development Program. At age 17, Karen couldn't imagine what her future held in store, but she was sure it would have nothing to do with the work she did that summer. Here's Karen Duquesse on stage at City Winery in New York City, reading The Girl in the Back Room. On summer mornings at Motif Designs, women in tennis skirts flip through fat books of Marameco wallpaper. With tilted heads and pursed lips, they contemplated the implications of choosing the cheerful orange poppies instead of the sophisticated green ferns. They scrutinized nearly identical paint chips and asked if Venetian blinds would make the right statement for the living room. I was 17 and had interest in none of it. Working in the back office, I was bored. In a 1980 pre-iPhone, pre-texting friends from the bathroom, pre-Candy Crush kind of way. <clears throat> Just me and a pile of invoices and purchase orders, an adding machine that chewed up rolls of paper, and a slow, noisy fax machine. The job's saving grace was that it was mindless enough for daydreaming. As I typed up estimates, my mind drifted to memories of the nights before when I'd snuck into Manor Park with my boyfriend and thoughts of the days to come when I would finally leave home for college. 
I didn't know precisely what I wanted from the future, but I knew it would involve writing, adventure, and romance, would take place nowhere near suburban Larchmont, New York, and would never require the services of an interior decorator. <laughs> One morning, I peeked out from the back office to see the store owner consulting with a man with jet black hair and dark sunglasses. It was our local celebrity, eyewitness news anchor, Ernie Anastas. <laughs> With shades remaining on, Anastas joined his wife in discussing new decor for their home, a stone house with turrets that stood at the end of a winding driveway behind a tall iron gate. I knew the house well. As a girl, whenever we'd drive by, I'd strain my neck to look at the castle, hoping to see the princess who lived there. Now I was less impressed. <laughs> Watching the couple finger fabric swatches, I whispered to the 20-something office manager, can you imagine ending up anything like them? <laughs> you know where this is going, right? <laughs> As I type, I'm in my house about six miles from the site of Motif Designs, which is now a bank. My husband is at work reporting on the economy for television. One son is down the road in high school, the other across the country in college. I'm back at my laptop after taking a short break to oversee the installation in my bedroom of flat Roman shades selected with the help of a decorator. <laughs> Is the ambitious girl in the back room at Motif Designs disappointed? Probably. I'm pretty sure she'd be pleased to know she would get romance and adventure, a newspaper job in a swampy Florida town, years working in Russia, and marriage to the adventurous guy who was willing to go along for the ride but she would be aghast to learn that by her mid-30s, she would move to the suburbs where she would raise two children and work a mommy track job everyone would say she was lucky to have. For much of my adult life, I had that girl on my shoulder, sometimes pushing me forward, occasionally holding me back with her naive beliefs that learning the art of compromise is not a good thing, that a 25-year marriage can't possibly be romantic, and that you can't have flat Roman shades and be a writer. <laughs> but as I neared 50, I had an epiphany. I'm wiser than a 17-year-old girl, and I'm old enough to tell her to shut up. <laughs> and when I did just that, the best of her spirit came through. So now, when I sit down to work on the novel I am finally writing and determined to finish, I can hear her girlish voice, brash and hopeful, urging me on. Karen Duquesse has blogged on Raising Boys for the Huffington Post, and she's written book reviews for USA Today. She has a degree in Russian studies from Brown University and a master's degree in journalism from Columbia. She lives with her family near New York City and spends as much time as possible in Truro on Cape Cod. John Gredler, poet and memoirist, is a frequent contributor to Read 650. For today's summer job show, John revisits the memory of scorching summer days spent in an Olympic-sized pool. But there was no water in that pool, just mops, paint, molten tar, and willy. Here's John Gredler, recorded on stage at Sydney Winery in New York, reading Willie. That summer, my mother would come into my room every morning and leave the help-wanted section of the newspaper on my bed. <laughs> or on me, still lying in bed. She had circled possible jobs in red marker. I dragged myself to the youth employment service and applied for the first job that sounded okay, 
painting the Olympic-sized swimming pool at Badger Sports Club. I showed up at 8 one morning to meet Willie, an old black man wearing overalls, pork pie hat, a cigar stub stuck in the corner of his mouth. He looked me up and down, stopping at my long hair, then took off his sunglasses and looked me over again. He spat without taking the cigar out of his mouth. We gotta get the leaves out, Willie said, handing me a rake. Empty, the pool looked immense, a blue rectangular void. The leaves in the deep end were wet and slimy. I slipped and fell on my ass at one point. Willie just looked at me, then turned away. After we raked out the leaves, we mopped the entire pool. Then he told me to mop it again. <laughs> when I finished, I asked, are we ready to paint now? Willie snorted. First, we got to get the pitch out of them seams, spitting some nicotine-stained saliva too close to my foot. He squatted on an overturned five-gallon can, lined up a long chisel, and hit it with his hammer. The tar shattered like black glass. Then Willie handed me a bucket with a hammer and chisel, work gloves and goggles inside. He watched me hold the chisel at an angle and hit the seam. It shattered, spraying me with obsidian shards. Not so hard, keep them goggles on. For the next two weeks, we inched along a few feet apart, the pitch exploding under the blows of our hammers. As the day wore on, I would strip down to my t-shirt. By the end of the first week, a rash broke out on my arms and neck. The skin turned brown and began to peel off from the bits of pitch hitting my exposed flesh. If you keep that up, you'll be black as me, Willie said, shaking his head. Why didn't you tell me? You seen me, didn't you, he said, holding up his arms, long sleeves tucked into his gloves, his shirt buttoned all the way up to the neck. As the spring grew warmer, the tar became a soft, sticky mass. We'd cut into it along the edges and pry out gummy wedges of black taffy until we cleared it all out. Tomorrow we pour the pitch, Willie said, lighting his cigar stub. He told me I'd be carrying the molten tar from the parking lot to the pool. He would use metal watering cans with the tops taken off to fill the seams. When we finished pouring one, he expected me to be there with a full can. It was a hot day, the metal cans full of tar, heavy and scorching even with the thick gloves I wore. It went on like that all day. The next morning, we took long poles with rollers attached and started to apply the thick blue paint. By mid-afternoon, we were in full sun. As we rolled out the paint, thin membranes like cobwebs peeled off the rollers and rose up in the heat. Gossamer webs of pale blue floating just above our heads. I was captivated, wanting to see how high they would rise before falling into themselves in twisted ropes or disappearing into the sun. When we finished, we were both spent. Willie fell asleep under a big oak tree, the cigar still stuck in his mouth. I sat on the edge of the shallow end, gazing out at the pool, a glimmering oblong of sunlit turquoise that seemed to levitate out of the ground. Thank you. 
John Gredler is a recipient of the Catherine Gerfine Fellowship from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, and his work has been published in Atticus Review, Narratively, The Sun Magazine, Westchester Review, Talking Writing, and others. John lives with his family in Tuckahoe, New York. Anna Perrette first came to New York as an investment banker transferred from London. She's lived in America for over 20 years, in Palo Alto, California, Washington, D.C., and New York City. For today's Summer Jobs show, Anna recalls a burst of short-lived entrepreneurship when she and her best friend drove to the countryside north of their London homes to sell their wares at a flea market. Here's Anna Perrette at City Winery reading Homemade Jam. Shroom, shroom. Blasting wind from speeding traffic picked up the cardboard sign, homemade jam, tossed it over the hawthorn hedge and into the field of ripening barley. That summer, I worked part-time at a pick-your-own-market garden, picking fruit to be sold at the farm stand. I was allowed to take home as many punnets as I wanted, I think. <laughs> My best friend Judith said, let's make jam, I know how. And, and we can collect jumble, second-hand clothing, used books. We can make calico skirts, elastic at the waist, draw Chinese characters on them. We can sell stuff at Milton Keynes Flea Market every other Thursday, or once anyway. We reduced the soft fruit with sugar, added lemon juice for the pectin. We boiled empty jam jars to sanitise them and filled them to the brim. We covered the lids with gingham mop caps, leftover swatches from school summer uniform dresses. We arranged the jars in a pyramid on our allocated stall. We hung the cotton skirts from the awning in front of the previously worn dressing gowns, cardigans, office shirts yellowed under the arm. We unfolded two camping stools in readiness for a long, busy day. Judith opened a rubbish bag of gently used shoes, strapped sandals, high heels, brogues in need of polish. Don't unpack them, said a man in a cloth cap. I'll take the lot. Two quid. I hefted a box onto the trestle table. A man with a full grey beard watched me open it. Books? Three quid for the box, he growled. The market hadn't even opened yet. At half past nine... The shoppers began to drift in. By 10.30, they filled the walkway like herded sheep. A woman picked up a pot of jam, turned it over, and put it back. A teenaged girl fingered a skirt. Her mother shook her head. Too short, she said. Three stalls down, the shoes were selling for 50p a pair. Across the aisle, the books went for 60p each, some a pound. We sold a jar of raspberry jam. <laughs> By the end of the day, books and shoes wholesale, one jar of jam, we had made £5.30. We were rich in jam. <laughs> Let's stop on the way home, Judith said. Sell it roadside. Great idea. To make a sign, I tore a panel from the box of unsold nighties and borrowed a marker pen from the sweet old lady who ran the stall next door and who, it seemed, had sold an inordinately large number of hand-knitted tea cozies 
bed jacket. Thanks for buying the jam, I said to her. <laughs> then Judith and I crammed our goods into her mother's Hillman Imp and drove out of Milton Keynes. How about here, Judith said as she bumped the car onto the grassy verge and stopped. The road was straight. An approaching driver would have a clear view of us for a good 500 yards. Behind the parked car, I set up a camping stool, draping one of the more attractive second-hand dresses by way of a tablecloth weighed down by jars of jam. <laughs> Judith retrieved a large stone from under the hedge and wedged the cardboard sign, Homemade Jam, against a small sapling. Cars sped by, shwum, shwum. <laughs> Laughing, her calico skirt flapping with every gust of wind, Judith plucked the spinning sign from the air and returned it, peeled it from the side of the hedge and returned it, chased it down the road and returned it, squeezed under the hawthorns, crawled through the barley, retrieved it and tossed it into the back of the Hillman Imp. Years later, I came across a jar of gingham-topped strawberry jam on the top shelf of my parents' larder. It was a little runny, but so good on toast. <laughs> Anna Perrette is a Scott Meyer Award short story finalist whose work has been published in Orbis, Inkscape, and Ghost Town Literary Magazine. A former docent at Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve at Stanford University, Anna presently serves as a naturalist at Sheldrake Environmental Center in Larchmont, where she lives with her family. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati Mayer, Karen Duquesse, and Shelley Sadler Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show was produced with generous assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from City Winery, a fully functioning urban winery offering intimate concerts, food and wine classes, private events, and fine dining. City Winery strives to deliver the highest end combined culinary and cultural experiences to guests passionate about sharing wine, music, and good food. City Winery brings the wine country experience to the city. View the complete event schedule at citywinery.com. Read 650 contributor David Masello is an essayist and poet who writes about art and culture. For today's edition of Between the Lines, David reflects on a writer's passion and purpose with this remembrance of his mother, the writer and columnist Sonia Masello. This is David Masello reading The Happiest Moments. A spare bedroom in our house was known as the writing room, though early on my mother used the dining table as her desk, while I, as a boy, played in the same room, selfishly demanding her attention, running toy cars over the carriage of her typewriter as she typed, the spokes from the cavity nearing my fingers. 
My mother's essays appeared regularly enough for her to earn the nickname the Irma Bombeck of the North Shore. And it was not uncommon for strangers to approach her in the grocery store to compliment her on the latest column. Her topics included the disguised histories of neighbors. Another about the time my grandmother's perfume filled our house after her death and memories of loaves of banana bread sent to my mother at college by an elderly aunt and how the increasingly diminished textures and flavors of the loaves reflected her beloved aunt's decline. In a conversation I had with my mother when she was in the hospital, I suggested she remember the happiest moments of her life. That's easy, she told me in a whisper. 1950, when I had a poem accepted by a children's magazine. I remember holding the acceptance letter and couldn't believe that I was to be published. During the emptying of her apartment, I found that acceptance letter and the stub of the check for $5 that she received from the publisher. And I found, too, in a scrapbook, a printed copy of the poem, a tribute to the My Bookhouse series of children's books my mother had grown up with and from which she had read to my brothers and me. Weeks after I had emptied her apartment, I could still see and feel as if a version of snow blindness, the paper that passed through my hands during the cleanup. The tips of my fingers had become smoothed and burnished, not only from the bills and insurance forms, but by the uncountable pieces of paper I found with jottings, phrases, individual words, paragraphs or incomplete essays, notes from lectures she attended at writers' workshops, lines she'd heard from literary guests on the Mike Douglas show, quotes from obituaries of notable people. On the backs of expired detergent coupons and bridge score sheets, on yellowed pieces of notebook paper and takeout pizza menus, were the beginnings of articles and essays, new words she wanted to remember to use, practiced alliterations and humorous rhymed couplets. They were akin in some ways to the kind of fragmentary poetry found in ancient Greek urns that, even out of context and omissions, have a lasting import and beauty. Here were messages out of the past that remained relevant now. David Masello is executive editor of Milieu, a national print magazine about interior design. Previously, David held senior positions at Town & Country Magazine, Country Living, Art & Antiques, Travel & Leisure, and others. Prior to his magazine work, he was a hardcover nonfiction editor at Simon & Schuster. He lives and works in New York City. Between the Lines is a regular weekly feature of our show, and it's the place we invite writers of any genre to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. Visit read650.org for details and view open submission calls for our upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend, and please take a moment now to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us, and it helps other listeners and other writers find the show. That wraps up our summer edition of Read 650. Thanks again to writers Karen Duquesse, John Gredler, Anna Perrette, and David Masello. For more Read 650, join our community on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.